Hi, welcome to our podcast. Just before we get into our lesson today, we just want to update you on a new project that we have at Gibbs Street. In April, we will be beginning a three-month series looking at the life of Jesus as told in the Gospel according to Matthew. This will be uh, 13 lessons telling the story of Jesus from his birth to his resurrection. Along with this, we are going to be offering a 90-day devotional book to correspond to the lessons that we're hearing. Um, This will contain readings from the Gospel of Matthew and it will have some questions, some prayer requests and some other resources. Um, The church here is going to be following along with this devotional book and we would encourage anyone who's listening to the lessons to receive one of these books and to follow along too. We will be providing an electronic copy of this devotional book on our website, uh, www.gipschurch.com. We'll also be happy to send out physical copies to anyone who would like to follow along. If you would like a physical copy, please head to our website and send through your name and your address and we will post some out to you. Thanks and enjoy the lesson. We're looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 31 today. If you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 31, um, we'll get our main text from there. So we're just taking the book of Isaiah. It's got 66 chapters in it, and we're taking five key chapters from that and explaining what those chapters mean to give you an overview of what the whole book is about. The whole book in one sentence is the anticipation of hope that the people of Israel were looking forward to in the coming Messiah and the age that he would bring. So all of these chapters relate to that. In chapter 1, we looked at the problem of sin and that um, the covenant that they had broken, that contract that the people had broken with God and how that needed to be fixed. In chapter 9, we looked at last week, that there was darkness through the land, that the time, the, the time when, Israel, when Isaiah spoke to Israel, he was speaking to a people who were... Um, in, a, in a place of doom and, and distress. And he said that there's a horizon, there's a, a, a sunset, a sunrise, sorry, on the horizon to look forward to. So we're looking at Isaiah 31 today. Um, just to give you a bit of a um, key to the book of Isaiah and, and where this is found. So chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah give an introduction. If you like uh, classical music, if you like sonatas, I know there are a few people here who like that and who play classical music, um, the prophets are a lot like classical music. It's bad news for everyone who doesn't like classical music, but the, uh, the prophets kind of have a similar structure to them. Um, if you look at the structure of a, uh, a general sonata, it, it starts off with the exposition. So it starts off with a piece of music that is the main theme of the whole piece. Um, and then it goes into the development. So this is the main body of the piece of music. And it takes the main theme and it explores it in different ways and goes in this way and that way and, and gives you all sorts of things that you can do with the main piece of music. And then the end is the recapitulation where you put that main theme back together, you resolve it and everything is in harmony together. So that's what the prophets basically do. They, they start with an introduction, they start with the main theme and then they go through the whole of the book going through um, different ways of exploring that theme. It's not so much chronological, it's not A, B, C and D. It's it's doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that um, and exploring this topic and then at the end of the book it resolves it and looks forward to the the resolution to the problems that they're facing. 
So chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah is kind of like that exposition in classical music. It's the, the, the main themes of the book are found in the first 12 chapters. And then we go to chapters 13 through 27, and it's God sitting as judge of all the nations of the world, not just of Israel and Judah, but of the entirety of mankind and saying God is the ultimate ruler and judge of their actions. Then we get into a series of five poems that are the woe poems in, in chapters 29 through 35. Then we have a, a brief historical section from chapters 36 to 39. Um, God's comfort, so this is heading towards the resolution part at the end in chapters 40 to 55. And finally, this hope for the future in chapters 56 through to 66. So if it's classical music, this chapters 1 through 12 is the introduction of the main music. This part in the center um, from chapters 13 to 39 is exploring that theme. And then chapters 40 through 66 is resolving everything and coming to a final solution. So today we're looking at this part, this five woes. And the chapter that we're looking at this morning is centered in the middle of this, Isaiah chapter 31. And the reason why they're called the five woes is because they all start with this word. In, in Hebrew, it's hoi. Um, in English translations, um, you might have ah, or you might have alas, or you might have woe. So it's this, um, it's kind of like onomatopoeia. It's a, a word that sounds like, um, it will, the definition is kind of what it sounds like. You, you say hoi, or you say ah, or you say woe. It's, it's getting your attention, and it's proclaiming there's something really important going on, and you need to watch out because of this. So we have chapter 28, verse 1, starts with hoi, 29, verse 1, 30, verse 1, 31, and verse 1, and 33, and verse 1. So the um, chapter we're looking at today is the, the fourth woe poem in um, Isaiah chapter 31. Okay, let me give you a bit of setting uh, to see where we are in, in history here. Back in Isaiah chapter 7, we didn't look at it, but there's a very fascinating account. King Ahaz is the king of Judah. So Judah is um, the southern kingdom of Israel, and Jerusalem is its capital. It's, it's down the bottom, just across from the Red Sea, and this is ruled by King Ahaz. Um, north of Judah are the the, the northern kingdom of Israel, um, the, the northern tribes. And then we also have the kingdom of Syria. Now, there's a difference between Syria and Assyria. They're different nations. They just sound very similar. It's like Wales and New South Wales, that kind of thing. Um, they've got a very similar sounding name, but you've got to differentiate the two of them. So King Ahaz was king of Judah in Isaiah chapter 7. And the two nations to the north, Israel and Syria, decided to make a coalition. They made a pact with each other and they decided that they would try and come down and destroy Jerusalem and the whole of the nation of Judah. Isaiah comes along to King Ahaz and he says, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. God is going to protect Jerusalem. He's going to protect the whole nation. So you don't have to worry about this. And, and Isaiah even says, ask for a sign. Tell God to do something. Ask for some miraculous act to confirm that God really will deliver you. And Ahaz says, I don't need a sign. I'm all good. Um, you don't need to ask God for a sign. Don't bother God for a sign. I I'll trust. And this sounds like a really good thing. Ahaz sounds like a really faithful man and, and sounds like the kind of guy that you would want leading your nation. And it's only when we actually go back 
and read the historical account um, in <coughs> Second Kings chapter 16. Uh, I won't read it, but note it down and you can read through it later. turns out that Ahaz wasn't scared because he had enlisted the school bully to help him um, when these guys picked on him. So we have Judah over here, Israel and Syria. And way over to the northwest, you have the, sorry, the northeast, you have the kingdom of Assyria. And throughout the years leading up to Isaiah, the nation of Assyria is getting larger and larger and pushing down from the north. So what King Ahaz did to get rid of these two um, guys here was he went to the big bully and said, will you give me some help? He goes to the king of Assyria and he says, um, I am your servant and your son in uh, 2 Kings chapter 16. I am your son. You are my father. You protect me and look after me. Now, I don't know whether you remember, but in chapter 1, we looked at how Isaiah begins with saying, Israel is so dumb, they have forgotten who their father is. And this is why he's saying this. He's saying because King Ahaz is over here coming to Assyria and saying, Dad, come to my help. When who should they have looked to for their help? Well, sure enough, Assyria does come to their help. They come down through Syria and Israel. But what do bullies do? Do bullies play by the rules? Do bullies keep the agreements? Do bullies say, well, we had a, you had my word and so you know, I'm not going to do any more than what I promised? No, bullies play by their own rules. They don't care about what agreements they've made. Bullies are happy to make uh, and break any rules. So all of a sudden, King Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, faces a threat from Assyria because Assyria who had helped them to destroy Syria and Israel is now at their northern border and is potentially going to come down and, and wipe out the whole city. And whose fault was it? It was Ahaz's fault because he, tr he put his trust in Assyria instead of trusting in God. And now Hezekiah has the Assyrians at his doorstep and he is faced with the question, am I going to go somewhere and ask for help or am I going to turn to God instead? So where do you think Hezekiah might turn to for help? Well, all of this is desert out here. So basically the only place he can go is to Egypt. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 31 and verse 1. And it says this. Well, the question that is being asked in this chapter is, when times are tough, do I turn towards God or do I turn away from God? Do I turn to others for help? Isaiah um, chapter 31 and verse 1 says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Does this sound familiar to you? should sound very familiar because we actually studied a very similar passage last month when we were looking at Psalms. So in Psalm chapter 20, if you want to just flick over to Psalm chapter 20 with me, we'll revisit something that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 20 verses 6 to 8. <coughs> These are, this is one of our songs of victory. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we 
rise and stand. Very similar, isn't it, to the words that we see on the board there. Woe to those who rely on horses, trust in chariots, and in horsemen because of their strength. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If you pull this passage out, you may not be sure what it's talking about. But with that background, the choice is very clear. Hezekiah, are you going to turn to Egypt, turn to a a big nation to protect you like your dad did, or are you going to trust in God this time? In uh, Isaiah 31 and verse 2, it says, And yet he is wise and brings disaster. Who's the he here? This is talking about God. God is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words. He doesn't say one thing and then get it wrong and have to change his mind. But will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. Here's the thing. If you don't choose to be on God's side, you are choosing to oppose God. This is a... um, In Australia, we have elections that you have to vote in. You have to vote for someone. It's not optional whether you vote or not. You have to go to the polling booth. You have to put in your vote. This is what the Bible is saying also. It's compulsory voting. You have to put your vote in and you have to either vote for Egypt or vote for God. You have to choose what team you're going to be on. If you're not voting for God, you are voting for Egypt. You are voting for the opposing team. And God will oppose not only the evildoers, but the people who help. Who are the helpers of those who work iniquity? Well, the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the ones who help the Israelites who are, who are turning away from God. In verse 3 it says, The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? How often do we make a God of the things in our life? How often do we bow down and worship things that aren't God? Certainly not um, different from the Jews there. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, that's the Egyptians, and he who is helped, that's the Jews, will fall. Again, very similar to Psalm 20. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand. This is why we sing songs talking about standing with God, you know, standing on the promises um, that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, So when you have storms in your life, you think of uh, when a a big storm comes at night and the the trees, uh, you can hear the the storm approaching, you can hear the gate banging, you can hear the the toys in the backyard flipping over and and the the wind is, is so strong you can hear it. And this is what this song is talking about. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. That's what Hezekiah was facing, howling storms of doubt and fear. He had Assyrians on his doorstep and he had a a storm of doubt and fear in his mind. By the living word of God, I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. In verse 4 and 5, it says, and they all shall perish together. In verse 4, it says, For thus the Lord said to me, as, you know, whenever the Bible says as, you know that this is a a poetic device. This is a simile that it's using. So it's going to compare some illustration to a real-life event. So as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when the band of shepherds is called out against him, so you picture this. You picture a lion in a field. He's got the, the sheep that he's selected to 
pounce on to attack. And the band of shepherds comes out to try and defend, to try and save the sheep against the young lion. The lion is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. I don't know if you've ever tried to distract a lion, but they're not easily distracted. If a lion wants to kill a particular animal, a sheep, a goat, whatever it might be, you can do all the banging and clapping and shouting in the world, but it is focused on its prey. That's the illustration. So what's the application? So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Just as a lion is absolutely set on its goal, on its purpose, so God is set on his purpose to also fight. What's it talking about here? Fighting the Jews? Fighting the um, children of Israel? No, look at the next verse with me. Isaiah 31 and verse 5. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. The illustration is not that God is a lion who is trying, who is absolutely intent on destroying Jerusalem. The illustration is God is so focused on delivering and protecting his people. And no matter what pots and pans you bang, no matter what shouting you do, God is still completely focused on your salvation. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Isaiah 31 verses 6 and 7. It says, it's kind of out of the poem. This is a, a narrative section. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. They have revolted. I think one translation says they have defected. The word deeply there um, conveys something that is ingrained, something that is really bad and getting worse. Uh, it's, it's something that isn't just a, a one-off thing. It's something that people are getting worse and worse in. They're getting lower and lower in their iniquity. The, the point that he's drawing here is that sin isn't just a one-off thing. It's, just, it's not just a harmless thing that you dabble in. It's something that it, it becomes ingrained. It becomes habitual. It becomes something that you give in just a little bit you give an inch, it'll take a mile. You give a tiny bit to sin and it will consume you. He says, For in that day, the day when God delivers Jerusalem, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Why are the people casting away their idols of silver and idols of gold? Because they realize that those idols don't save them. When they trust in God, when they turn back to him, then they realize that only God has the power of salvation and only in him will they choose to trust. And notice here, they throw away their silver and their gold. Like this comes at a cost. But when you realize that God is the savior of your life, you're happy to throw things away. You're happy to throw valuable things away, whether that's a job, whether that's... Um, particular social groups that you have, whether that's a lifestyle that you're living in, whatever precious thing you have, when you realize that it's God alone who saves in your life, you throw those things away readily. And we're finished with uh, verse 8 and 9. 
and the Assyrian shall fall by the sword, not of man. It's not going to be your power that saves you. It's going to be God. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. This is the irony of all of this. Assyria was the most vicious, horrific empire that the world had ever seen at that point. And they had been killing people by the sword, but this time they would fall by the sword. They had been chasing after people, this time they would be chased after. They had been putting people into forced labor, and this time they themselves, the vicious army, would be put into forced labor themselves. And finally in verse 9, <clears throat> his rock shall pass away in terror. His rock seems to refer to the king of Assyria, who will pass away in, in terror. <clears throat> and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Do you remember chapter 1 when we talked about fire? What does fire do? Fire refines. Fire takes away the evil, the bad, the um, things that aren't valuable and leaves behind the things that are very precious. When Hebrews talks about our God is a consuming fire, what does um, a consuming fire do? It consumes all of the stuff that's not meant to be there and leaves behind the things that are valuable, the things that are precious. Okay, so Isaiah 31 is a brilliant poem of woe and it's about not trusting in your earthly things when you're faced with tough times. So, what does the world turn to? What's the modern day Egypt that the world turns to when things get tough? Let's just picture this. Let's just, Isaiah likes similes, so let's do a, a simile ourselves. Let's um, imagine that you've had a, a really tough day. Let's imagine that you're very stressed from work. Is that hard to imagine? It's probably happened every day this week. Let's say <coughs> things went bad for you. You didn't help your spouse um, when you had opportunities to do so. You feel bad because you've been a bad neighbour. You haven't looked after the people around you. You cut someone off in traffic because you were so focused on, on what you needed to do, you didn't stop and, and care about that other person. You were impatient with your kids, you were grumpy at your parents, you were feeling bad because you've really made a mess of today. Now, what do you do? What do you turn to for help in that situation? I'll tell you what we do. We go to the freezer and we get out Sara Lee's salted caramel ice cream and we make ourselves a big bowl of ice cream and I sit down on the lounge and I feed myself until all of those sorrows are drowned. Does that sound unfamiliar to you all? Or maybe it's a pizza and you're just shoving in that Hawaiian pizza and you, you don't even like it, but it's just a distraction from those feelings that you have from the day that's, that's just too tough. We call this comfort eating. Binge eating. We also have binge watching, don't we? I've had a really tough day. Things have been really hard. I'm just going to get home, turn on that TV, and just wait until I get too tired to watch anymore and then go to bed. My problems are just too hard. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling like my self-esteem is low, and I just can't deal with it. I'm just going to let the TV distract me from my problems. That's what we do. Maybe you feel inadequate maybe you feel like all week you're trying to prove yourself 
You know, you feel like you're not good enough and so you have to prove yourself with your, your job or you have to prove yourself by getting the best grades in high school or the best grades in university. And you have to show people that you're valuable because you're smart and intelligent and, and you're a good worker, a good employee, and it's exhausting. And maybe you just have to escape from that once in a while. You're just so busy with this problem that eats you up each and every day that you just have to escape by going and going shopping or going for a run or going and washing the car or going into the garden. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. I'm certainly not preaching against ice cream or gardening. I enjoy both of those. I have a job review today at our business meetings. I'm not preaching against ice cream, okay? I know that that would look bad. But life is hard and I look to Egypt, I mean my TV, to save me. Life is hard and I look to ice cream slash Egypt to save me. I spoke to a lady once um, who had a drug problem. She wanted to stop consuming drugs, but she said life is too hard. I just can't deal with the stress and the problems of life without these drugs. And I was shocked by that conversation because her life seems so similar to mine, just substitute heroin with ice cream. I drown away my sorrows with a bowl of ice cream and it seems so much better than the lady who drowns away her sorrows with alcohol, cocaine, whatever it might be. Now, I'm not advocating for cocaine. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, I'm not for a moment pretending that, that ice cream is inherently evil, that these things aren't, don't have their place. But if they are substituted into your life as your saviour when things get bad, that is relying on Egypt and not on God. When every time my life gets tough, I have to go to my happy place. You heard people talk about their happy place, right? And what we mean by happy place is I'm distracted from all of the, the woes and the pains of my life. So I go to my happy place and that's my favourite restaurant or that's you know, sitting down to, to my favourite meal or that's um, spending time at this particular park or at this particular place. That's my happy place. And if your happy place isn't the same as your God place, it's probably something that needs to change there. I don't know what your Egypt is, but I do know that we're all tempted to rely on short-term distractions instead of dealing with problems and finding a solution from God. We distract the pain away instead of actually going to God and asking him for our help. What's the solution to this problem? What's the solution to going down to Egypt? This might be going in a slightly different direction here, but I hope you can see the link. Fasting is the solution that the Bible gives. Fasting is a, a solution for over-reliance on physical distractions in your life and not focusing on your spiritual well-being. Sometimes we ask the question, is fasting commanded? Um, perhaps a better question is, is fasting a good thing for a healthy spiritual life? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you fast, do this. What does that imply there? That's surrounded by when you pray and when you give. What's the assumption with the advice that he's giving? The assumption is that you will fast at some point. 
when the Pharisees come and ask Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? He says, they're not fasting right now because I'm here, but when I'm taken away, they will fast. That's pretty much a command. It doesn't get much closer to a command than that. And then we have the example in Acts 13, verse 2, Acts 14, verse 32, that the disciples of Christ did make time for fasting in their life. Whether we can argue all day long as to whether fasting is a command or not, but is fasting a good thing for a healthy spiritual life? We can all agree, yes, absolutely it is. It was practiced by many people in Scripture and it's something that is often neglected today. What is fasting? Fasting is turning away from a physical distraction to depend upon a spiritual solution. So in the Bible, fasting is not just a food thing. You can actually fast from all sorts of different things. Just read through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and you see examples there of different types of things that you might give up for a period of time so that you can rededicate yourself to God and to his work. If you haven't fasted before, what fasting is about is saying, when life gets hard... I can cram my life with all of these physical things to keep myself going, whether it's food, whether it's the PlayStation, whether it's the TV or books or movies, gardening, whatever it might be. There is something that you might turn to and might be relying upon and depending upon over God in your life. And fasting is about saying, I'm going to give something up for a period of time. It can be a couple of hours. It can be a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. You say, I'm going to give something up so that I can focus on God instead of focusing on whatever Egypt is in my life, whatever I'm depending on in a way that is unhealthy. So I want to leave you with this. What is your Assyria? What are the problems that you face in your life? And what is the Egypt that you turn to for a solution? And if possible, can you go without Egypt for a specific length of time to show to yourself, to show to others and to show to God that you depend on him for your salvation. It might be food that you give up for a, for a period of time. It might be the TV. Find whatever you go to in your life and see whether you can fast from that for some time. Because the world says the path to fulfillment is through abundance. Just as much as possible. Have as much as you can and fill yourself up. And God says the way to fulfillment is through abstinence through going without so that you can depend on him. So, for this week, find out what your Egypt is. See if you can go without it. See if you can give something up to rededicate your life onto what God has promised you and rely on God as your saviour instead of whatever Egypt there might be. Appreciate your time this morning.